let's go. Master of all things tabletop. With the Paladins of Podcast. They ruin the games you love by talking rules that suck, how to build kick-ass encounters, destroy worlds, and really get your players invested. So go ahead and throw that fistful of dice at someone. Because we're going on a side quest. Welcome back to another episode of Side Quest with the Paladins of Podcast. Rob and Eli, how are we doing today? Hello, hello, hello. Um, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I got yeah. this podcast, and then I'm gonna go play some Chain of Command. That sounds like a work thing. No, no, it's a World War II like skirmish war game. That sounds uh, cool. Yeah, I have a friend who really likes historical games, and so <laughs> uh, we play a lot of that. Oh. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I, uh, I haven't actually sat down to play a board game or. Um, anything other than tabletop games for a while. So, hearing things is kind of refreshing. I heard you ran some convention games right this past weekend. Yes, this last weekend was the Yukon Gaming um, Convention in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And because I promised you, Eli, that I would run a game for you at Gen Con uh, 24, I decided to cut my teeth now. Awesome. And I ran four games four hours a piece, all of them the same adventure because I knew I could fit them within four hours. And I got to tell you, it was, uh, it was a little nerve wracking at first, but it was easy. Once you settle into it, um, a lot of people really loved it. Sent everybody out free copies of the adventure, uh, slightly different every time I played. So it was fun. It was good. How big is the convention? Uh, this convention is, well, I want to say really small, but I feel like my opinion on it is very jaded because compared to Origins and Gen Con, which are massive. Do you, this... you know the number? Nah, no, no, maybe a couple thousand over the days. How would your tables do like in turnout? Uh, two of my tables were four out of five, and then two of my tables were full, five out of five players. Nice, nice. So, uh, anything go wrong? Anything go badly? I love how that's the first question. Um, no, nothing really went wrong or badly. And the the adventure itself is set up to be pretty straightforward. It's narratively, I don't want to say weak, it's narratively um, self-contained. You, you run the, uh, the Pharaoh King? Yeah. That, that one? Yep, Legend of the Pharaoh King, which is the first adventure that I had published as Epic Table Games. And I got to tell you, honestly, as much as I love the adventure, I still change it up every time I ran it, primarily because you don't want to run the same exact cookie cutter thing every single time you you run the game. And running 16 hours of it in a near continuous row is a little, a little hard to do at times. Well, what do you mean? Uh, what did what did you change between between the adventures? A lot of times, it would be things that the players may have found or did not find. So, for example, they would get to a certain point, a second mini boss, for example, that um, if they set off a trap to extend the room, I had added in alcoves with uh, skeletal bodies 
and the skeletal bodies had magical rings on their toes that would make sure their bodies themselves were not reanimated after death, which is a uh, Egyptian belief. They didn't want their bodies to be reanimated. So okay. I just added those small little details in um, or put some certain magical items that they may have found in one spot in a different spot just to flow better for the time constraints, because that is what I found to be the biggest hindrance was time. Um, and the changes that I made were all to make sure we could continue an entire adventure from start to finish in that four hour block. How many, like how many combat encounters or like how many, like puzzles, dialogues, like mm -hmm. how many encounters did you manage to fit into four hours? In the four hours, uh, everybody completed at least two uh, combat encounters. <clears throat> and the lore building was pretty much the strong point. So the buy-in was pretty quick. That averaged about 10 to 15 minutes per party. The final encounter generally averaged close to about an hour because there's a puzzle built into it. Um, so that's literally looking at an hour and a quarter off the top of my time constraints. The first boss battle, about 45 minutes, so that's two out of four hours. And then depending on how much investigation they want to do or if they want to do a second mini boss encounter. So I did find that the fastest party ran through it in three hours. The longest party took almost all four hours, and they're the ones that did the most combat encounters. Yeah, I, I generally think like each, like kind of each scene that you prepare lasts about an hour. Like yeah, the, like combat or investigative, they'll take about an hour before they move along. I, I found. Yeah, so. and that, that that seems to track about with what I had done. And like I said, I mean. <clears throat> When your time constraint is the biggest thing, you kind of do a little bit of magic finger waving. I told them, I said, hey, right now is the perfect spot that you guys could take a short rest. We were playing D&D 5th Edition. I said, you guys could take a short rest. Make these checks right here. You can get the story and lore because if you get through the convoluted map uh, piece by piece, we're not going to finish the adventure. So they're like, yeah, sounds good. So we did it that way. And I said, and we finger waved uh, two combats with two skeletons and a mimic. Uh, both of which at level eight, they would have been able to walk through anyway, but it would have taken from the end battle. They would have run over time. So making those decisions to run convention games, absolutely spot on. They all also jumped on the idea of just working with the first guy that said that they could take them to the pyramid versus actually looking for a guide. Uh, both of those options are presented in the adventure, so it works out there. I think the only thing I'd say is um, I, I like to run convention adventures that usually I don't have to change anything just because the players will choose different paths no matter, like, every single game, so... It's, yeah, that's usually what I do. Like, it's oftentimes I will also run adventure like the same adventure like four or five times at a convention. Mm -hmm. um, I've I try to find ones that generally have a little bit more options, um, so that the game's different for each uh, for each run. And that that makes sense. And I will say that that is one 
difference between the Legend of the Pharaoh King versus some of my other adventures that it is rather linear, but it's designed to be linear. It's a, it's really more of a dungeon crawl with minimal story. So well, it's like a crawls, light dungeon crawl. Dungeon crawls don't always have to be linear. Um, in... You're right. But, I mean, it's set up to be a little story, a lot of history, and then you're just working your way through the dungeon. So, Are, are you going to use any of, like, essentially the feedback or the playtesting uh, of the Pharaoh King that you did at this convention to modify the Pharaoh King? I asked for feedback. Everybody gave me zero uh, constructive criticism and a lot of compliments. It was they loved the theme, they loved the style, they liked the pacing, they liked how I presented it. They they really fell in love with the amount of research and respect that I added into the Egyptian culture for the adventure. Um, but nobody was like, I would have changed this. I didn't well, get anything like that. You have you considered then editing the changes that you made for time's sake and then edit your adventure to be a more formalized like this is a game to run in this many hours. Here you go. I, uh, I thought about it, but again, I mean, it's truthfully designed for about two sessions, about eight hours worth of play. Um, I literally, by cutting out all of the extra story and background, you can get it done in four hours if you focus on the encounters. So, really, what I did was just eliminate the uh, the slog of the dungeon crawl, and. I was paying attention, watching everybody's faces, trying to judge and anticipate, because the buy-in for that adventure feels long. Um, and what I mean by that is, when you first get to, everything leading up to the first mini-boss is incredibly easy. There's very little to find, there's very little to do, there's very little to see, and it's like, this feels ridiculous. Like, the hook is not here, the catch isn't here. I see. I see what you're well, what you're getting to. Why don't we yeah. change that? I intentionally wrote that because traditionally, uh, tomb robbers or archaeologists, when going into uh, actual Egyptian tombs, would come across false rooms, empty rooms, rooms with a little bit of treasure, all things to persuade you to not go deeper in. Um, and so it's set up very similar. As I was watching their faces, I was worried it was a it was a bad, bad bet. But everybody loved it. By the time they got to the end of it, they praised it from the second they walked into the tomb well, so, all so, the way to the so end. So what do you mean that the beginning feels like too boring? Because as adventurers... Like if it feels too boring, why not change that? Because it's by design, in the, in the beginning, it's got that feel intentionally because you're not experiencing the uh the dread of the egyptian tomb yet you're not you haven't unlocked any of the secrets it is an easy straightforward shot literally to get players to lower their guard bring their defenses down to think oh this isn't going to be a huge deal there's nothing terrible about this remember i've I've described this as a deadly adventure, in which it is. It is a deadly adventure. I had convention players, uh, their characters had died. Um, but much like true Egyptian archaeologists, it feels harrowing and too easy at the beginning. 
once you get past that first level, it takes the turn. So I designed it that way. And the first level is not long. It's not big. It just takes enough to get people to say, eh, this feels a little easy. It feels a little too simple. It feels a little too light. You know, what's going on here? They get them to question it. So by design. Okay. <clears throat> It's it's one of the it's just it's one of those things. I, I put my style of running a game in paper format. And like I said, by the end, it works out. It feels beautiful. But jumping in, not knowing anything, not knowing until the end, that's like giving away everything. That's like a uh, good cinematic story. Like the beginning feels a little light. But by the end, when it all makes sense, you're like, oh, shit. And the whole thing works. At the same time, how much didn't you say there was almost uh, an hour? Did you say there was an hour or two hours of lead up? Like, what is it? How how long was your lead up at the convention? Uh, fifteen minutes for the general haggling of the guide, and then it takes about forty five minutes from that to finish the end boss. So the introduction to the actual dangers takes about an hour. There's still an aggressive combat. So there's, there's still an hour haggling. of that boring time? Uh, we're lumping it all together. In that entire hour, we have an aggressive combat. We well, have yeah, I'm just wondering, how much, how much of that time is boring? That depends on who you are. Right, but you, you said the beginning of this adventure is boring. Yeah. So how much of that time of at the convention was in that boring category? And what I would figure boring, about 30 minutes. And that includes the 15 minutes talking with the goddamn guide. <laughs> so, right. 15 minutes. I guess, Which, I mean, 30 okay. minutes kind of on the long side, but... Now, to break that down for anybody who's listening, who's like, ah, shit, I'm not sure about the Pharaoh King. Guys, it's seven rooms. It's seven rooms with three traps and a mini boss. Actually, I think it's ten rooms. Ten rooms, a mini boss, and two or three traps. All right, well, let's. Uh, here, here's a question to lead yeah. into what we're talking about this week. Uh, how did you run your NPCs for the Pharaoh King, for the, the guide and the haggling? Uh, so, Hassan is the name of the guide. Um, he's the first person that you introduce. I have him sort of developed a little bit. I tell everybody that he resembles the merchant at the beginning of the Aladdin animated film, you know? the one who has everything you could possibly need. And he has that shady feel to him. Um, <clears throat> they introduced himself and it's hard to justify with a convention game because they want to get through it. So they're like, ah, Hassan is fine. Hassan always spoke in third person, which just seems to fit the character. And he starts off the idea of, hey, I'm going to ask for a high price. If I'll show you to get to the pyramid, 30% of whatever you can kind of grab with the intention of grabbing whatever he can and literally escaping, running out, not finishing anything. So Hassan is rather lightly developed. And so like in your, in your adventure, how much, like what do you have to help run Hassan? I have the initial paragraph or two that is in the book. Okay. And a chart. <laughs> I got a D10. I think it's a D10 table. Like, hey, characters can use these skills on I this guess, uh, I, D10 
DC yeah, chart. I, I guess what I'm asking generally is like for your for your permanent NPCs or your big NPCs in your game, mm-hmm. what do you have written down that you're using at the table? Yeah, Hassan is not the kind of guy you want to ask me about for that. All right, well, the, tell me about one of your NPCs. Like, for one of your NPCs, what do, what do you create for them? I, I know you create a bunch of details for them, right? Yes. You create huge backstories. What yep. other what other things do you create for them? Uh, a lot of them I have what I call a personality sheet. Okay. So there are kind of like personality uh, rules, things that this character would act like on a general consensus, and certain things that might push him in one direction or another, if it comes down to, uh, I guess, sins and virtues, as it was described to me once. If this character has sins and virtues, what things will push him in an opposite direction or positive direction to the things he believes in or she believes in? Um, when I develop those NPCs, I really try to feel like I am building the person. So I try to at least first step into the idea of the character think about things that they like, and then I write these down in a list. So a lot of times it's a list, and then I narratively type it up so it's backstory style because that helps me solidify it in memory. So how many pages How many pages do you end up having for an NPC, or I guess, or how much, how many on bullet av- points of information, I guess? On average, I tend to have three pages per NPC. And those pages are generally comprised of uh, backstory, current personality, and residence. So if he's not on the mortal plane, for example, if he has like a custom plane he stays in, a little bit of history on that particular place. So you got three pages for every NBC. How do you take that to the table? Like, Like when you're playing in the middle of the game... And you know you're gonna run into Doug the Fire Lord. Yep. Like, do you what do you do with those three pages of information? I commit them to memory. So I can actually recite a majority of my NPC's primary bullet points, um, personality type, what they look like, and some of their backstory. You just committed all to memory. Yes. Uh I do you need like what if you need something to reference? I guess at the table, like do you do you reference anything? Or it's just all from memory. I very rarely reference something about my NPCs, and if I go back and like that doesn't feel right, I'll actually go back and retcon it because what I said most recently most likely hasn't been really spoken about before, so it's okay to change. Oh yeah, um, this feels different. You got something way out there. Don't, like. How do you well, do it? I mean, like just committing it all to memory isn't just like, how do you stay consistent? Like, okay. how do you like, cause it okay. sounds like you're just retconning. I don't, that's the thing. I, I've, I've had to retcon so little. Um, Eli, you do a lot of reading. Yeah. Yep. All right. So um, Lord of the Rings, you've read the book. Uh, yeah. All right. More than once. Yeah. A couple times. Tell me about Frodo. Um, what do you want me to talk about Frodo? Oh, like, cause I link. can't recite from memory. Like the, dis- like Frodo's description. Um, no, but you know like, what Frodo looks like. Hey, he's a little hobbit. I think he's got like brown hair. I mean, if I described something, I'd probably end up being describing Frodo from, uh, from Elijah Woods, right? from the film. Elijah Woods. Uh, so 
All right, let's let's take away the idea of the description. Let's say you've already described uh, Frodo. But I mean, think about his personality. Think about the type of person he is. You have those committed to memory. Yeah, I mean, like I could describe different actions that Frodo had, you know, that might, you know, express his personality in certain ways. Right. Now, I do the same exact thing that you've done with Frodo as I'm writing my characters. And it's the thing is like, it's not just Frodo you have. You've got Frodo, Gandalf, you have uh, uh, shit. You probably have characters from books that you read so long ago, like the Bernstein Bears, kind of committed to memory in a, to a degree. Yeah, I, I, I do to a degree, but also I, like, I naturally what take I that, remember isn't always perfect. I naturally and... take it one step farther, though. Like, I can't, it doesn't come out of my head. It does not come out of my head. Okay. I, and I talked to a psychologist about this because I have other issues since my arm. Apparently, I compartmentalize, I memorize things, and I hold on to them for a very long time. So it's a benefit in some ways. So, like, in your everyday campaign, what yep. what do you reference? Like, what do you have in front of you to reference? Or, like, for your campaign notes, like, what do you look at when you're playing every once in a while? My players. Just, all right, the whole time? Yeah, maybe right. I might have I might I might have NPC stat sheets, not NPC um encounter, uh bad guy stat sheets. You don't memorize those? Actually, I've got enough of them memorized where it's pretty cool. But <laughs> um, no, it, it's just well, I don't want to back it up. That's I mean, just, <laughs> if you can just memorize everything. I don't memorize everything. When you ask about like what I do with notes, uh, I actually remember the session and I write down notes after the game. So, okay. um, it's, I don't know. My love for storytelling has put it into a position where mentally I can catalog it, keep it in decent chronological order, and then, uh, excuse me, just recall as necessary. I mean, Which, I, if, you, if you have perfect recall... I'm... Not perfect, just good enough. <laughs> yeah, Remember, I, we, we don't have I, to be perfect, just cohesive. That's fair. Um, I guess I have a little bit more uh, or freeform or improv uh, way of NPCs then. Um, <laughs> I like his freeform, and I'm just like, I got it memorized, I make it up on the fly. Let's hear it, Eli. Well, yeah, because you, you seem a... blown away by this. If you have a hundred pages of character backstory and you've memorized everything and you have a perfect person and you can do that for everyone in your world, that's great. I guess the main question I have for you then, how do you do random? Like, if the party is just like, hey, that guy, I point to the nearest person who's selling cheese. Oh, so you have the cheesemaker who's got six dairy cows. He's been living off the land for the last three years and just made a three-day mountain journey to sell his famous goat cheese that he makes on the side, but he was excommunicated from his religious church. Now I just commit that to memory. We call him Teddy because it's short for Thaddeus, which he hates. His dad used to yell Thaddeus when he was extra angry and beat him with a switch that he had to pick from the willow tree out behind his house. All right, great. So... You just made that up? I just made that up. All right. So did you do, like, what was your method? All right. So I 
just pulled from general personal experiences of bad stories that I've heard. We gave him a complication for when he was younger that I can use to torment him now because he's still kind of a little irritated. I gave him a three-day journey from somewhere across the mountain, so that way he can be either random or not. But when he disappears, he's days away, so I have time to go back to him if necessary. I mentioned, you mentioned he makes cheese. So we used cows for dairy, but he's on the side hustling goat cheese, which is more famous. Why is he doing that? I don't know. I got to answer that question now. And then we gave a little bit of description about uh, the willow tree he had to pull his own switch from, which is generally memorable. So that way, if I've ever got to go back to his location, I got something to build from. Awesome. So I, I, I covered all the main points that I would ever have to go back to. That's pretty well thought out. <laughs> so, um, I, that, that's initially what you're asking the first time. Like, you've got you do the same thing, don't you? Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> I do something very similar. Let's let's hear it, man. I mean, like for the past twenty minutes, we're talking about you know Rob's crazy NPC. There's this catalog, you know, this ridiculous information. I mean, I can't make room for other shit because I got NPCs in my head. Eli, what's your secret <laughs> sauce? Um, my secret sauce is, uh, I generally create a lot beforehand, um, and I just go over it enough and I read enough random tables that I think about those random tables, uh, oftentimes. So um, what kind of random tables are we talking? Like this NPC is a, uh, D 100. Uh, he's a horseradish farmer. Or he's got a crooked nose. Like, what what do those tables look like that you've memorized? Yeah, like uh, generally, like they can be different. I, I like to read a lot of different tables, and mm -hmm. they can be all tables. I mean, I think every system will create like random NPC tables where they have like d hundred professions. Yeah, um, I like to just generally just read those. Um, I, I also like to try to um, like when I'm thinking about cities. I like to do research on like distribution of of careers. Um, Interesting. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> um, that's, that's fair. I I get it. I'm not as huge of a table fan as you are, but I try to reference them because of you. I try. I try to look at them more. I don't always roll on them, but I I use them to to help inspire direction um yeah when, when i'm creating my npcs i like to have um like descriptions like it, something interesting definitely to bring yep. them back to um some sort of personality you know they gotta have some personality traits and uh some a, a flaw of some kind mm -hmm. um along with their motivation so and that's all usually those... the five things i'll put down for uh for for an npc if i'm just making them on the fly um, yeah, something you could actually easily fit on a note card. That, that's what I that's what I like to have, um, especially since I'll sometimes I'll have players end up end up naming or creating NPCs. Mm -hmm. So I'll just I can also also create like giant NPC decks yep. where they're just currently kind of unassigned, and then when I need one, I'll just flip one out, um, and then they've been breathed alive. Um, <laughs> like I've done the same thing. Shaquisha the Knight. Thanks now, for naming that, Sean. Now that that brings up a an interesting point. Um, Shaquisha, for example, is a name that doesn't 
generally come to the forefront of most people's minds. Um, as as for an example, I went with Teddy and then expanded it to Thaddeus because Thaddeus did not come to mind first. But I'm like, ah, Teddy can be the nickname. Uh, how do you deal with names that come up that are complex, that yeah, have give uniqueness? That's that's why I like to have a lot of pre-made names. Um, and so oftentimes I'll just have a bunch of pre-made names and I'll just pull the floor, the first one. Um, so I'm, I am the worst with names because I, I like the names to try to be consistent with like whatever the theme of the region or this character yeah. is going to be. Um, so that's, yeah, that's why I try to prepare like the prepare names. Um, even if I don't pre prepare personalities, oftentimes I'll have just random lists of names on, uh, on different sheets of paper around me. That's so. true. That's true. Now, I also have to say, I believe your players are a little different than my players. My players don't generally say, hey, what the hell is that random NPC's name anymore? Where I'm sure your players still do. Um, in fact, you've told me examples of when they've just gone up to people and they've looked for information. Uh, in general, my players just look for people who are going to give them the information that they want because that's the type of game that they want to play. So... I primarily get to develop NPCs that are at least of marginal importance. Um, it helps my players feel like they're always progressing something. And it means that everybody they actively speak to has to have some form of importance. Um, ju thus, thus justifying a little bit more information if they ever choose to dig back into it. Um, and again, I don't know why or how but it's easy for me to catalog stories i mean that's that's fair i think that's a that's a good point about trying to build npcs that all um, or at least having the players interact with npcs that all give them something forward uh mm -hmm. in in the story um i think it's been something i've been trying to do a little bit more in general mm -hmm. um just Every once in a while, the players will ask someone completely random for the completely wrong thing. And I, I just sometimes don't know how to, I'm like, you've act to turn up, like, I mean, I think you can always tie things into stories. Maybe yeah. That's just something I have to do. It's, uh, I ever tell you the RPG horror story I have? It's personal experience uh, about, one? about, um. I had started a game, a campaign, early into my DMing career, where my thought process was, yes, correct logistically in the real world, but incorrect for in-game world, where I'm like, you know, you guys don't just, everybody you talk to isn't going to have the information you're looking for. So I would, they'd go through the slog of having to find the right person. And I'm like, they hated it. I'm like, damn. It's not like you're going to just go find everybody on the, on the first try. That was the game they wanted. That's not the game I gave them. That was the game they wanted, though. And that's where I really started to develop my taste for designing games around the fact that everything has to progress forward. Uh, something. Progress something forward. Whether it be adjacent or the main plot, but it couldn't progress something new. It couldn't start a new thing unless it was paramount to the whole um that that is when my npc started to change that's when my uh style itself started to change once that began to develop 
that's when my NPCs started to get more history to them. And when my players found out, that's when they started asking the most absurd, ridiculous questions. And if I couldn't answer them, I started making sure I could. Then my NPC profiles got bigger. Now they can ask me about any ridiculous NPC that they know. And like, I got an entire backstory. How, how often do your players ask you questions that you don't know the answer to? Uh, frequently, actually. <clears throat> so if I don't know, it's generally something that hasn't been codified yet. So I get to create it, then it becomes codified. See, I, I never run into that issue when I'm playing. Because um, I, I, I feel like with a like a more flexible NPC framework... I can answer any questions that the players ask in the moment. All right. Let me let me explain then because I the way I answered the question while I still stand by I believe it makes more sense to say that um they don't trip me up. They don't I don't answer a question I don't know in the sense of I don't know but in the sense of I haven't prepared it. So if I haven't prepared it I would say I don't know. So if somebody says, "Hey Rob, what's Thaddeus's favorite color?" I don't know. I haven't thought of that. But the second I say green, it's green. And as if even if I just shoot it out the top of my head or don't think about it and sputter something out, I mean, that's when it becomes codified. Okay. So, I mean, when somebody says, Eli, what's that NPC's favorite color? I mean, do you immediately already know? I mean... Probably not, but See, by looking at what I have for my NPC, I can then decide. <laughs> like, or you can just make it up. Like it does. Right, right. So when I say I don't know, it's not that they trip me up because I don't know. It's just it's not prepared yet. Much like in your flexible framework, <laughs> you don't know. Um, th those kind of questions uh, do come up every now and then. I don't generally like. What kind of question would you say fits that bill? Because I, I just chose a dumb one off the top of my head. I don't know. You you would, you were the one that brought up questions that you didn't know the answer to. <laughs> so, all right. Now, in that flexible flame, excuse me, flexible framework, you got your note card, you have your, uh, do you generally name your characters on the note card? Like, you already have the name right there. You yeah. got them down. Um, and motivation some likes, some dislikes, maybe some challenges or complications. What things do you put on there that do you feel are absolutely paramount to every NPC that you feel is different? Like, what do you do different that most other DMs might not do? Minus three-page backstories, apparently. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if what I do is very different. Um, okay. I, I've, I've tried to copy making NPCs like this from other DMs uh, that I've seen. Um, Bonfire has a similar framework of how they do NPCs, mm -hmm. which I rather like. That's a good um, system. Yeah, it, it just it kind of gives you bullet points uh, for the, for the character's main you know main highs and lows, and then you work from there. Um, and with the note card, or I mean, I also have a Google Drive that I maintain with all these NPCs. Yeah. Um, do your players have access to that Google Drive? Uh, no. Okay. No. Um, 
I could do that. No. Feel like I'd have to then have two Google Drives, one for like player-facing information and then one for uh, secrets about NPCs. So, <laughs> that sounds like it puts a lot more work on your shoulders, though. Yeah, and that's why I don't have it shared. So, <laughs> that that's uh, fair. That's that's one of the things that I've done with my uh, background stories because I I type them up more narratively. So once they know an NPC well enough, I'm like, here, eventually you're gonna figure this shit out. Just read it, take it. I don't have to reference it. Oh, so your your players have all the the characters' backstories. Uh, or like, or the, all the NPCs that they've interacted with backstories? Once they know them well enough. What does that mean? Uh, when they can start reciting bits and pieces of their backstory to me, yes, they'll get their whole thing. So, I mean, roughly how many, how many NPCs are they at that level with versus how many they've interacted with? Like, is it 100? Is it 70%? Is it... I'd say we're about twenty percent of all NPCs that they've acted, they've interacted with. They have character backstories too. Cool. Have they like used them? Some of them, yeah, yeah. Others is just sort of filling in their folder of uh, knowledge that their character has, so they can reference it at any time. Um, I've also been kind of Easter eggs. So sometimes there'll be things in character backstories, like, "Hey, this character really likes uh, shit." Easter eggs. So, <laughs> like, do you, do you do you put like secrets about those characters inside those backstories? Then, and then the players, the the sharp players that read a bunch, then should know them. Yeah, yeah, I do. Like, if a character likes Easter eggs and it's slipped in there, and there some of my characters, like, you know what? I remember he likes Easter eggs. So, when it comes close to the season, I'm going to specifically remember to bring him Easter eggs if we have to communicate with him. Do you, do you ever, like, like if, you know, like, of these 20 NPCs that they've run into, uh, let's say, like, one of them has a relevant secret or a piece of information about something that's going on actively in the game, like, do you bring up that? Or, like, are uh, they supposed to so, remember that? Like, is there any sort of, like, call back to them that you do? If they have relevant information or something secretive to a moment in the game depending on the players if they know about it it stays if they don't know about it it's redacted literally i'll just it'll be blacked out like what's that like you'll find out later um and there's actually an in-game story on why that all happens the way it does so i justified uh making it easy for myself but if it's just floating like something that they could learn, something maybe not. I don't point it out. It stays, and it's up to them to investigate further as though they found it out in-game. So if, so if you think it's game-breaking, you'll redact it. If you don't think it's game-breaking, you'll leave it in, but you won't remind them. And so if they have read it and use it, then you can use it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, game-breaking seems really heavy, but uh, it's, again, it's a good way to put it. <clears throat> um... That was another thing that I, I'd actually kind of learned from our early conversations in our podcast through those uh, campfire moments where I include burning questions. So burning questions, I'll answer everything so long as it isn't game-breaking or um, twist. Wait, what, what is this? These burning questions? Yeah. 
So like yep. the, the players will ask you questions about the game. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh. Before every session, I've got burning questions. So, uh, for example, that little boy that ran across the street uh, last session, what was up with him? I'll tell you anything you want to know about him. So long as it doesn't break the uh, twist or potential story hooks in the game. I'll tell you everything leading up to those points on anything you ask. That's crazy. Uh, how often do they use it? Every game. Like, what sort of questions did they ask at the beginning of the last? Like, like, what kind of questions do they generally ask? I guess. I have a NPC. Her name is Maddie Hale. Maddie Hale is actually Madeline Hale, who wrote the book Arcane Curios, and it's a third-party published book. And in my game world, I turned her into a nine-year-old artificer where she's not 100% perfect yet. And I've given her an entire backstory, background, and history. They'll ask me things like, exactly who is Maddie Hale or what is Maddie Hale? I'm like, Maddie Hale is human. She is from the uh, the material plane. She is nine years old. She's been going at this. She's sort of a savant when it comes to artificer work. This is what she's been doing. This is sort of what she does. And... Uh, this is where she hangs out. She's not integral to the story, but she's an NPC that they interact with to a high degree. So I do. Can do you them. say that even that she's not integral to the story? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, she's not integral to the story, but she is somebody that you interact with frequently. So when wow. they when yeah. they ask, I, I tell there well, there's no no reason to keep it behind the veil, you know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I guess one could say you could keep it behind the veil to preserve player knowledge or like character knowledge as player knowledge. I, I suppose, but at the same time, with it being exposed, it's not damaging the game, nor is it providing uh, metadata. Like they can't use that and metagame with it. Well, I mean, it's it's all metagame information. I mean, especially to know an NPC isn't integral to the plot, right? But yet they still in they still inquire, still choose to interact, still decide to interact, still seek her out, and her position hasn't changed. Like right, but like if you run into a character and they are integral to the plot, right? Then I wouldn't tell them that they're not integral. I wouldn't tell them that they are. That but would then be they, hidden behind but, the veil. But by not saying they're they're not integral, therefore they are integral to the <laughs> plot. I tell them they will find out if they're integral when I say integral to the plot when I say things like I can't tell you everything because there is something coming up that involves that. So if I can't answer the question because it's game breaking, that's how they know that there's a portion behind the veil that they have to find out in game story. Yeah, I mean that that just kind of kind of just throws me a little bit. I honestly I would I would love it if you were in one of my long-term campaigns. You'd understand. It it feel better. Uh it's something where people tend not to ask as many burning questions the farther in they play. Especially once the big strokes of the game picture have been painted and we start filling in details, they connect their own dots and it's incredible to see the realization. Okay. So I feel like I've done way too much talking in this episode, dude. 
<laughs> oh, you've 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 dropped some big bombs. Um, I guess different. Like it gives you a background on like my DMing style, which is it. When I talk about it, usually it feels like I got all these like big pieces just like all hidden, and I, I'm throwing them at my party, but they're connected. And you always ask for a lot of information behind that, and I try not to give away too much, which makes it worse. It's hard for you to follow. And now I'm like, oh, I I got all of it back here. I'm trying to t- trying to fill it all in. I, hope I, mean, helps. I, I mean, since you have so much like world building, I mean, the, the burning questions are a great way to deliver that world building. I, you you have something similar besides just the campfire moments, right? No, I, I don't have something like that where they where I'll answer just anything about the world. Is it something you would consider doing? I, I don't know. I because I think if I were to implement something like that, I would ask for it to be in character, or I would use the bonfire moments to have the players describe and add something to the world. If that makes sense, it it does, and I see the value in it. Um, I don't want to refute that, but I I want to throw this out there just so you can kind of gnaw on it a little bit. Okay. If you were to ask your players about burning questions, it would let you know exactly what they're focused on. What things have stuck in their minds. So you have a direct line to what they're really paying attention to. Well, after every session, we always chat. Like we we end the session and then we'll chat about the game. So usually, they... <laughs> like like I'll I'll ask them like like oh I'll basically check in with the players and see how how it's going and what they're what they're thinking about. Um, and they can ask questions and you answer to a degree. Yes, but I answer only to the degree that their characters would know. All right. See that that's fair. And that's it's it's good. It's not a bad way. It's not wrong. My way is not right. It's 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 one of those things where um I I I come to appreciate my style primarily because uh it, it does. It tells me what they're focused on. It tells me what they're what's what's stuck in their brain, like an earworm of a good song. Your end of the session recaps where you're checking in with your players does the same thing. Um different way, same results. I like to be a lot looser with my information now, primarily because I've always got a twist that I can pull out of somewhere. Uh, and, that, and that's where it helps me. I, it, I mean, it, it's something that I might think about doing, um, but only to the extent of what their character would know. Um, I, I, I think that's fair because that way, again, on their side of the veil, your character doesn't know this, so you can always reveal it later, and they can always investigate further if they're interested to do in-game. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, something all gnawing. I, I, I love it. I, I think it's great. I actually like answering the burning questions uh, when the players are not expecting the answer that they get. So they're like, ah, you know what? Who is this guy? Oh, that's this guy right over here. The list of all the stuff that they got going on with them. And they're like, wait, it wasn't this? Like, nope. He is in no way central to anything you got your fingers in. 
but he seemed so like I know, and you were hooked on it, and you rolled with it, but he's got nothing to do with it. See, that's what I'm not a fan of. Is I I prefer it when the players like they suspect that that's the main villain. They like burst in their house. Oh no, he's just the Miller. Like I prefer that reveal as opposed to oh yeah, no, you guys are looking at the wrong barking up the wrong tree. All right, now I see where where some of our disconnect is coming through. I have yet to have a player ask me in between the scenarios. It's always after they burst in. Oh, he's just the Miller. He's not the guy. They generally don't ask till after a reveal. So if they think they're on the right track, they generally have no burning questions. But when they feel like they're off track or something went wrong or they didn't expect, that's when I get more. Well, then congratulations to your players for not abusing, uh, abusing the system. I do appreciate that. Um, it's it's incredible. We've been doing it for about a year. Uh, also mixed with campfire moments uh, from you directly, which has been an awesome way to get that soft start into the game. Um, all of these things that we've talked about have actually helped my my players and my style mesh even more. Uh, so it's really cool. Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I, I greatly appreciate it. However, looking at it, we're over time right now, and I feel like I've rambled on for the hour i'm sorry eli hey yeah that's all right you know we just had uh some burning thoughts that's true now we're already a little over is there something that you really want to um put out there we did talk about the npcs and you are getting the notes down for an upcoming game and we decided that we wanted to talk about npc development because we wanted to Continue from our kick-ass encounter idea. It's about kick-ass social encounters or kick-ass NPCs. <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I guess we talked a little bit more about just the NPCs themselves rather than integrating them. Um, but I think it was a good conversation. All right. Then we want to talk about how we integrate NPCs next week. Uh, sure. All right, I've got one NPC that I, I, I'd really like to talk about because it's one that one party loves and the other party hates. All right, spicy. So I'll, I'll keep it to one NPC. Would you like me to send you the information I have on him before we sure. talk about him? I'll do some homework. <laughs> it's it's not that bad. I'll send you the two pages. Uh, All hopefully, right. Hopefully right after this or shortly before the episode goes live. Uh, but guys, thanks for checking us out. Every week, uh, we have our side quest released on Saturdays. You can check out our published adventures at epictablegames.com. You can find us on Facebook at Epic Table Games, Drive Through, RPG, Amazon. They all have our products, uh, as does the Open Gaming Network, which also includes many different RPG SRPs that you may be interested okay, in. Okay, new intro. We'll see you next week. We've changed the name, and we're still using the word paladin. Paladin. I mean, it hasn't been used in the English language in about 200 years, but okay.